0: With that, let me pray for the word of God today, that he would uh, reach into our hearts and our minds. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the book of Revelation. We are in awe of what this book says to us, and just trying to unpack it, God, would you help us to do that? And as we talk about one of these churches this morning that you wrote, I know that many people are going to connect with it, and so would you help it to do dive deep into our minds and our hearts and our spirits so that we can seek you more fervently. We love you, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a light Sunday for us. We had someone come talk about abortion, and now I'm going to talk about pain and suffering. And the Packers lost last night, so I feel pain and suffering, and I don't want to talk about it. Okay, moving on. I studied a lot this week, and I studied a lot about pain and suffering, and it's going to make sense as we get into this scripture. Christians have, for as long as there have been Christians, we have tried to understand our relationship with pain and suffering. Because it's difficult to grasp onto, because nobody really wants to endure difficulty. And many people spend their whole lives trying to actively avoid any kind of pain and suffering because we don't like it. And yet we also, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we can often see that the biggest leaps in growth and maturity that we have in our life come from times where we are enduring difficult things. You guys know I, know, I love C.S. Lewis. One of his quotes that I love, he says, God whispers to us in the pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But God shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. A Jewish proverb says, not to have had pain is not to have been human. And even Aristotle understood we cannot learn without pain. Nobody wants to endure these things. We go out of our way to try to stay away from anything that is going to hurt, anything that is going to be painful, and yet we continue to go through these things throughout our lives. And today we're going to talk about a church that is in the midst of this very thing. We've been in the book of Revelation for a couple weeks now. I've shared with you Revelation, not Revelations, Revelation. It is a single revelation of Jesus to his church. Revelation means apocalypse. It means unveiling. It means that there were things that were hidden that are now being made known to the world The first chapter of Revelation gives us this amazing description of Jesus in his glorified state in the kingdom of God, that he is this powerful God who is in control of everything. And then last week, we started to talk about the specific churches that Revelation writes to. Last week, we talked about Ephesus. Ephesus was a church, maybe you connect with this, maybe you're the kind of person who does all the right things, but sometimes you're not sure you're doing it for the right reason. That was Ephesus. They did what they're supposed to do. They say what they're supposed to say. And yet Jesus says, I hold this against you. You've lost your first love. Your motivation for why you're doing what you're doing is not loving God. So he says, you need to return to your first love. He says, remember the things that you fell in love with. Repent from walking away from those things. And then restore the things in your life that made you passionate about Jesus. As we continue on into chapter 2, John writes a letter by the decree of Jesus to another church. He speaks to each of these churches in their unique situation. And one thing that's very unique about this church that he writes to today is that most of the churches that he writes to, he gives them encouragement, but he also gives them a reproof. Like he did at Ephesus, you've lost your first love. But there's two churches that he doesn't critique. He just gives them encouragement. And it might be because they're doing great, I'm sure they are, but they're not perfect. But I think it's because he understands that they are in a situation that he just needs to speak encouragement into. And so today we're going to talk about the church at Smyrna. Smyrna, as you can see on this map, is just about 40 miles to the north of Ephesus. It is a city that is actually, of all the churches that are on that map, none of those cities are still standing except for Smyrna. That city is still standing today. It is the modern city called Izmir, which I have a picture of. It's a modern city in Turkey. It's pretty amazing. You can see how beautiful the area is with the mountains. And right there, it's on the Aegean Sea. It's a port city. Smyrna was an ancient city, even at this time. Even in first century Israel, Smyrna was a city that had been around for centuries and it had actually been utterly destroyed in 700 BC and then around 300 BC, Alexander the Great decreed that they were going to rebuild Smyrna as a model city. It was going to be a city that he would build and say, this is what cities should look like. And so it had beautiful things like a stadium and a library and a theater. It had a famous road known as the Street of Gold that went all the way from the port all the way up into the hills. It was modern for their world, and it was beautiful. There was a couple hundred thousand people in Smyrna at this time. It was, like Ephesus, a self-governing city. They didn't have Roman soldiers walking around telling everyone what to do. They, They got to be in charge of themselves. Smyrna claimed that Homer, the famous author and poet, was born in Smyrna. It had a lot going for it. The name Smyrna actually comes from myrrh. If you were with us when we were going through the Christmas series, myrrh is that spice, the, uh, the resin, that one of the ones that they give to Jesus, and it literally means bitter. But that was the chief export of this area. They would export myrrh to everyone, so it became known as Smyrna. Right? And it's interesting because myrrh only gives off its scent if it is crushed. And there's going to be something very connected to that in this church, that they are going through a crushing time, and will they be the aroma of God? It's a very dangerous place to be a Christian. Smyrna was a place that was fully engaged in emperor cult worship. They literally worshipped the emperor as if he was God as if he was Lord and Savior of their lives. In fact, it became a capital offense in Smyrna to not make a yearly sacrifice to the emperor. And on top of that cult that worshipped the emperor, there were also temples all over Smyrna worshipping these false gods of the Greek and Roman pantheon. There were temples to Sybil and Zeus and Apollo and Asclepius and Aphrodite and yet, despite all of that, despite all of these false worship, false God-worshipping cults, still, somehow, there is a church in Smyrna that is remaining faithful to God and is growing. and is preaching the Word of God. So let's look at this, just three verses, actually four verses today. Revelation 2, if you have your Bible, if you have a device, open it up. If not, it'll be on the screen. I love seeing some people take notes today. Makes my pastor heart happy. Revelation 2, 8 through 1. And the angel and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So this is a short letter, it's almost a a postcard to Smyrna, where God is just writing to them saying, I I give you encouragement because I understand what you're going through. As we talked about last week, each of these letters starts out with a little section about who Jesus is, and it's taken from chapter 1. And in this one, he says, "I, I am the one who was dead and came back to life. This is incredibly important for a church that is about to endure bitter persecution. They need to understand that Christ has endured ultimate persecution and yet came back to life. This church is about to endure serious persecution and it's most likely because they will refuse to declare Caesar as Lord. The church would have said, no, Caesar is not Lord Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and him alone. And that would have been a capital offense against Rome at this time. And Jesus says, I know your tribulation. This word in Greek is an answering word. It's the word philipsis. And it literally means pressure. And maybe you fully understand what that's like. When the pressure of life is coming at you from every direction, and you just feel Like you are being crushed. Jesus says, I understand, church at Smyrna, that you are being pressured to the point of crushing. I understand that you are in persecution. And not just pressure, but he says, and your poverty. And this word poverty here is not just like, oh, you're kind of poor. It is abject poverty. As if they have nothing. They are dirt poor most likely this is again because they refuse to go along with the world of the emperor cult worship. And so they are being ostracized from any trades, any way to make money. And so they have nothing. They're not able to join the local guilds because the whole economy of Smyrna works around these temples and these false gods. There's silversmiths who make statues. There's Wood, you know, carpenters who build these things and, and all of it is revolved around this false worship and so when the church says we don't want to be a part of that they say fine you can't be a part of the economy and so they are abjectly poor and yet he says but you are rich because they are not living for materialistic things but they are living for something far greater that cannot be taken from them so not only does he say, I understand your poverty, I understand the pressure that you feel, but also I understand that there are people who are slandering you. And then he says something extremely strong here. He says there's people, this is Jesus talking, he says there's people in Smyrna who say that they're Jews, but they're not, they're actually a synagogue of Satan. Satan. That's pretty brutal. But there's some background to this because the Jewish people in Smyrna and all around the empire of Rome were allowed to worship however they wanted to because their religion was deemed legal. And for a while, the Christian church was seen as this subsect of Judaism. And so they were allowed to worship. But the people of Smyrna, the Jews, were so offended by these Christians being considered a part of their religion, that they began to make accusations against the church. They hated the Christians because they saw them as heretics. And so they begin to throw out these accusations and they're false accusations because they want Rome to begin to persecute the church. They want Rome to get rid of these Christians, maybe because they're heretics or maybe because they're jealous of the growth of the church. And so they begin to spread these false accusations. And you may have heard of some of these before. These are real things that were going on in the early church. The church was accused of being cannibals because of the way that we talk about communion, eating the body and blood of Christ. So they say, ew, that's disgusting. You're cannibals. They they misunderstand the whole thing. They accuse the church of being immoral because Paul says that we should greet one another with a holy kiss. See that? They're just kissing everybody. Immorality. They claimed that the church was destroying homes because one spouse would get saved and become a Christian and the other spouse wouldn't and it would cause problems in their marriages. They claimed, this is always funny to me, they claimed that the Christians were atheists because they didn't believe in all the gods. So they're atheists because they only believe in one God and that God is invisible. They claimed that the Christians were rebellious against the Caesar, which that one might be true, because they said, you are not Lord. So they make all these accusations, and they're making false accusations, and that is why Jesus says they are a synagogue of Satan, because the word Satan literally means the accuser. Satan is the one who accuses the brethren and makes false accusations. And so they are acting like Satan by making these false accusations against the church. So bringing it back to the scripture, verse 10, after all this he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Again, we come back, as we always do, to the number one most repeated command of Jesus in the entire Bible, do not fear. And yet you look at this and say, you're telling them they're going to go through suffering and persecution. Yes, but do not fear because I have overcome the world, Jesus would say. He's telling them you will endure this. Notice that. It doesn't say you might go through some difficulty He says, this is coming. Do not be afraid and endure. It says for 10 days, which might be a literal translation, 10 days exactly, or it might just mean for for a small amount of time you're going to endure persecution. It says that they might even be tested unto death. I want you to see something here. This is not because they lack faith. They're not being persecuted or going through difficult times because they just don't believe enough. It's not because they have some sin in their background and so God says, fine, I'm going to torture you. It's none of that. It says that they're going through these things because they are in a broken world and they are seeking to live their lives for the Lord. That is why they are going through persecution. This whole idea that... Many people in the church want us to believe that this that life should just be prosperity and happiness and joy and nothing bad will ever happen. It's not real. And it's nowhere in the Word of God. I decided last night while I was studying this, I'm not going to call it the prosperity gospel anymore. I'm going to call it the prosperity prosperity heresy. Because that's what it is. Because it's not what God calls us to. They were not suffering because of a lack of faith, they were suffering because of their faith. Because they were unwilling to just give in and do what the world told them was the right thing. He's simply telling them the same thing that John tells us in John 16, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Of course we're going to have tribulation. Everything that we do stands diametrically opposed to the evil that is leading this world towards destruction. Of course, we are not going to be accepted into that. It is going to be difficult. Michael Wilcock, a Bible commentator, said, nowhere in the New Testament promises freedom from suffering in this life. Indeed, without the cross, there will be no crown. But what God does guarantee is that though the church may suffer even death of the body, she will not suffer the death of the soul. It is not a punishment that we sometimes suffer. It is a persecution from the enemy that wants to stop us from pursuing the kingdom of God. And yet, even in the midst of all of that pain and suffering, Jesus says, I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life is the eternal life with God and his kingdom and it's a connection for those people in Smyrna. They, they are well known for their athletic games. And you know, if you win like kind of the Olympics, they give you that little crown. That is the crown of victory. And so Jesus is saying, you want a crown that just perishes and goes away or do you want an eternal crown, the crown of life? Because that is the only thing that you can take with you beyond this life. And then in verse 11, he says, he who has an ear... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Just like in the last section of Ephesus, the letter letter kind of ends with this, hey, listen up. If you have ears, listen. To the one who conquers, which last week we learned means those who are overcomers, those who remain faithful to the Lord even in the midst of of persecution and struggle. says, those of you who are conquerors will not be hurt by the second death. What does that mean? To answer that, we have to jump all the way, you have to cheat all the way to Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, tell us what the second death is. This is again, John speaking about a vision that he's seeing, he says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The second death is complete and utter destruction. It is being cast out of the presence of God for eternity being lost to his love and mercy and his grace. It is the most terrifying thing in all of Scripture. And yet, our verse today tells us that if you are conquerors, if you are overcomers, if you remain faithful to the Lord, then you will not be harmed by the second death because you will be safely in the hands of God. There's a story out of the church at Smyrna, that I think connects all of this together. It's a true story. We get it from a document that came out of the 2nd century in Smyrna. About 50 years after this letter was written, there was a man in Smyrna who had an awesome name. His name was Polycarp. And Polycarp had actually become a bishop of Smyrna at this time. He was being pursued by those who wanted to destroy the church and stop the spread of the gospel. And when they arrested him, they took him to the Herod. And the Herod said to him, Polycarp, what is the harm in saying Caesar is Lord and in sacrificing and doing the other ceremonies observed on such occasions so that you may ensure your safety? And Polycarp refused. The Herod became angry and he threw Polycarp out of his chariot. Polycarp dislocated his leg in the fall and they continued to drive him towards the stadium where he would be judged. As he walked into the stadium where death almost surely awaited him, witnesses that were there said that they could hear a voice that said this, Be strong and show thyself a man, O Polycarp. Nobody knew where the voice came from. Nobody saw anybody say it, but witnesses said that they heard it clearly. In the stadium, Polycarp approached the proconsul, which is like the local governor. And the proconsul said things to him. He's an old man at this time, 86 years old. And they said to him, respect your age, old man, which is a way of saying, take the easy route. Just say what you need to say, and we'll move on. Swear by the fortune of Caesar and repent. And Polycarp refused and he said, 86 years have I served him and never did he do me injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And then the proconsul threatened Polycarp. He said, I have wild beasts that I will set upon you if you do not repent. And Polycarp, who has become one of my heroes in the last couple of days, says, Call for them. For we are not accustomed to repenting of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to, be ch- to not be changed from what is evil to what is righteousness. To be changed to righteousness. And the proconsul pressed again, I will cause you to be consumed by fire if you will not repent, seeing that you despise the wild beasts. And Polycarp answers him, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little while is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. This dude's a savage. The proconsul was amazed by Polycarp and he sent his herald into the middle of the stadium where the herald declared, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. Three times he declared this. And the crowd all around him, filling the stadium, both Jews and Gentiles, began to cry out with uncontrollable fury in a loud voice, this is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians and the overthrower of our gods. He who has been teaching many not to sacrifice or worship our gods. And he was... Sentenced to be burned alive. The crowds of both the Jews and Gentiles actually started to gather a ground, started to gather wood for the funeral pile. Interestingly, many of the Jews, it was said that this was happening on the Sabbath. They were willing to go work and gather wood to kill Polycarp on the Sabbath. Once he was there upon the funeral pile, he prayed. Part of his prayer was this I give you thanks that you have counted me worthy of this day in this hour, that I should have a part in the number of your martyrs. May I be accepted today among these martyrs before you as a ready and acceptable sacrifice, as you, the ever truthful God, has foreordained, has revealed to me beforehand, and is now fulfilled. After he finished his prayer, the witnesses around him reported seeing something miraculous. Those who were appointed for the purpose of starting the fire did so, and then the fire shaped itself into the form of an arch, like a sail of a ship when filled with the wind, encompassed the body of the martyr like a circle, and he appeared within, not like burning flesh, but as bread that is baked, or as a gold and silver glowing in a furnace. Moreover, we perceived such a sweet odor coming from the fire as if frankincense or some such precious spices had been smoldering there. As they stood there, the fire didn't kill Polycarp until at one point those in charge told the executioner to go in and to stab Polycarp Polycarp with a dagger. And witnesses, I know this sounds crazy, Witnesses said that at that point, so much blood and water came out of Polycarp's side that it extinguished the flames, and he died peacefully of blood loss. Polycarp understood what the church of Smyrna understood 50 years earlier, that faithfulness to the Lord was far more important than anything else, more than his comfort, his money, or his safety. This church was a group of people that were all in on Jesus, even if it cost them their very lives. The question for us today, as the worship team comes up, the question for us today is, what are you willing to give your life for? What is worthy of your suffering What is worthy of you enduring persecution and dealing with the pressure of life? Are we willing to lay down our very lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ and to trust him that he's still in control of everything? To say, God, I'll even give you my life because I know that you have power over death. 2 Timothy tells us clearly, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecuted when you read that, you have to ask yourself this question, do I want to live a godly life? And that's a real question. If you know that it might cost you, that it might bring persecution, that it might bring suffering, is it still worth it to you to say, I long to live a godly life? Today I hope that the Word of God has challenged us to think about what it means to be faithful Christ I hope that the word of God has challenged us to be conquerors and overcomers and to say come what may I want to live my life for Christ knowing full well that it will bring persecution not might will knowing full well that it could very realistically cause some to die for their faith Do we still say, this is the most important thing in the world to me? Do we answer like Polycarp and say, do what you're going to do. God's been faithful to me, and I will not be unfaithful to him. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you encouraged the church of Smyrna sure they weren't perfect but they are enduring they're going through difficult times and you just speak words of love and encouragement to them and tell them I am in control I am your father and I have you in my hands and God there's probably many people in here today that need to hear that same message in the midst of their suffering in the midst of pain in the midst of a global pandemic in the midst of everything that's going on so many of us just need to hear you Tell us that you are in control. Would you help us to understand that and to trust that? Would you help us to be willing to lay down our lives and say, I will do whatever I have to do to become an overcomer and to remain faithful to you.